Good to see church. Welcome to NBC. If you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 15 today uh, as we keep heading down the home stretch. Uh, and we're going to cover in kind of survey form uh, the different um, kind of songs that are given during a, a really strange set of scenes uh, there in the book of Revelation. I, uh, I'll boil it down. If this is your first sermon uh, in the Revelation series, I have a friend, theologian at Abilene Christian University. He has a very simple three-point outline for the book of Revelation. Here it is. You ready? Point one, Jesus wins. Okay? Number two, you have to pick a side. Number three, don't be stupid. Those are his words, not mine. He basically says, that's it. He goes, Jesus wins, pick a side, choose wisely which side you're on. And that comes from the scenes that we're reading right now. It comes from the judgment scenes of, of God and what we look at today, the battle of Armageddon, what it is and what it's not. It's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, when you're growing up as a young person, you're, you're kind of taught it's a, about palm branches and stuff like that. And you do the little parades and, and all of those things and... And when you do, it's, it comes across to you, I think, as a kid. And as you get older, if you're not careful, it turns into like Arbor Day or something like that. Arbor Day was one of those holidays I did not know what it was. Uh, other than when I got a little older, they said, hey, it's about trees. We like celebrate trees or something on Arbor Day. But the idea behind it is it, they encourage people to plant trees. So there's an action that's supposed to go with, the, with what you're remembering, right? And in Palm Sunday, one of the things, especially as you're going through Revelation, to be mindful of is the clear juxtaposition of kingdoms between what you see in, the, in King Jesus riding in on a donkey's colt, as humbly as he is, and then versus the swords and the spears in the chariots of Rome. So today when we look at the battle, just remember there are two kingdoms at war here. The kingdom of God and the kingdom represented by Rome, also known as Babylon often in the book of Revelation. People think that Armageddon is about the end of the world, but it's really about the justice of God. And we've always had this kind of fascination with the end of the world. And we, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, it goes way back to literature. You've got Milton and Paradise Lost. You've got Art and William Blake. You've got film. You've got music. And this affinity for the end times is something that pervades the news. Uh, Time Magazine had a front page article uh, years ago called Apocalypse Now, Why We Can't Wait for the World to End. The year before, Newsweek had had a similar story on the front side. You think about uh, books that have won the Pulitzer Prize, 2007, Cormac McCarthy Wins with the Road, which also is a movie, uh, made into a movie about the end times. You can take things like I Am Legend or Independence Day or the Matrix Trilogy or the Hunger Games or, uh, I mean, just on and on and on. But the question becomes then, okay, what is the end of the world really going to be like? And when is it going to happen? Is it going to be a nuclear holocaust? Are we going to kind of slow cook ourselves in the crock pot due to climate change, some people think? Uh, is it going to be kind of a whimper, a very much a non-event? That's what T.S. Eliot kind of foresaw in The Hollow Men. And then there's this fascination that's kind of fertilized by by media coverage of the pandemic or climate change or economic crises or crimes of various kinds that leave us wondering if in fact Chicken Little was right, that the sky is in fact falling. And then you have things like happened yesterday. 
San Diego Aztecs going to the NCAA championship game. You think maybe the end of the world is near. All of a sudden, I mean, the Chargers win the Super Bowl or the Padres win the World Series. We may, in fact, be right there at the, at the doorstep of the end. Um, but but we're, we're looking for the signs. We kind of want to know what's going to happen. And there are times where it's just being earth-tired. It's just, can we just, if, if, if heaven's real, can we, j- can God, just why not today? Because all this stuff just keeps happening. And you just get tired of dealing with people or hearing just a constant stream of tragedy being dumped on us from uh, the headlines of the day or whatever. And you find yourself maybe doing that or, or, or you seesaw over to the, this kind of anxiety production that goes on uh, as a result of those things. But I want to ask you to think with me for just a moment about if those kinds of vehicles for communicating information existed back then, would the headlines have been terribly different? I, I don't believe they would have. Uh, you would have probably gotten headlines about, uh, you would have heard daily reporting of uh, torture and, and uh, persecution and death even of Christians, battles going on. Uh, the country was at war almost all the time. Uh, you would have had challenging economy. The Roman economy, for all of the stuff that you see in movies where it appears everybody's wealthy, that's not really the way it went. We have a 1%. They had like a 0.0001% at the top, and everybody else was relatively poor. You, have, you would have all of this kind of stuff. Ra- rampant sexual deviancy would have been reported on the regular. And so our, our news outlets and the things that we see don't report a whole lot that couldn't have been reported in previous times. And so perhaps one reason we have a fascination with the end of the world is because we think that our times are harder than everybody else's. Even though, if I were to ask most of us, hey, go back, think about your grandparents. Uh, do you have it harder than they did? And be honest with yourself. Yeah, my, I'm certainly, my grandmother was raised in the Depression. I've got it way easier than she had. So the question then is, what will the end of the world be like? The world had a beginning, the Bible says, Genesis 1-1, right? Revelation will uh, suggest to us it's very much going to have an end. And it's going to end in the way that it began, by God's word, when he says so. So most people assume that if the world had a beginning, it's going to have an end. But, but we believe as Christians that God spoke the world into existence and that he will speak it out of existence someday. It's a day we're supposed to look forward to, especially when all that seems wrong with the world is pointed out to us through minute-by-minute coverage. If you're a Christian, you're living under the reign of Domitian at the time, then, you know, you may, a guy who wants to be worshipped as Lord and God or called that at least by Christians or put them to death, the day of the Lord couldn't come fast enough for you. I mean, you get to Revelation chapters 15 and 16. Uh, they begin to point us to the end times and they speak particularly of God's judgment. This is the stuff that scares a lot of people when they read it. It's not just the weird stuff of the previous stories that we've read out of Revelation. This is the one that's that's kind of terrifying because what we get is this crystal clear picture, this, this kind of surround sound IMAX version of the justice of God being poured out on sin and evil and trouble and disaster. But what Revelation is going to say is 
that the judgment of God is really a further expression of the love of God. For after all, could we make a case that a God is loving if injustice was allowed to kind of run rampant without consequence? If there was never, if it was in his power to put an end to it, to evil, that he would take a pass because he's loving? Is that really the loving thing to do? God never sees. You can see it in gentle parables like the Good Samaritan. The idea of just passing by when you see disaster doesn't make you loving. It makes you uncaring. It makes you unchristlike. And in the same way, God, as he's going about watching the world around us, we hear some things today that will scare us on the one hand, but on the other hand, also remind us that God doesn't look, doesn't cover his eyes at evil. That there's going to come a point in time, whether it's in this age or the next, that God is going to right all the wrongs and that evil will finally come to an end. Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven, now remember seven, that's the number of complete, all fullness. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true. That's the part I want you to underline there. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. And there's a sequence of songs like that. Wrath gets poured out, and there's a song of praise. Okay. So here, God is referred to as just and true. He's both. Lest we get into thinking that somehow justice can be divorced from the truth. Whatever God is doing here is viewed as both just and true. So those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, that is worship the emperor, are standing beside the sea of glass like Israel did before the Red Sea parted and the Jordan River parted. And this heavenly throng waits for the just and true judgment of God to come to the earth. And just then seven angels pop up, they come out from inside the tent of meeting and are given seven golden bowls of God's wrath. So when that happens and they begin to pour these out, here's where the song of praise happens. So the question becomes then, are we willing to give God praise for his judgment, not just his, you know, the, 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 the more pillowed parts of the Bible? He's powerful and righteous and just and true, says the angels. The testimony of Scripture is that when God's judgment is revealed, we're going to be amazed at the justice and the fairness of it all. We'll just say, yeah, that's about right. 
Not that he needs our approval. But this is important because people wonder sometimes. Questions like, what about all those who have died and never heard the gospel? What about babies or young children that die? The question underneath those questions really is, can God be trusted? That's the question underneath it. Is God the kind of person who can be trusted to do the right thing? And the Bible's answer, of course, is yes. In fact, it would go so far as to say, only he can be trusted. We tend to see ourselves as just. We like to think that our concepts of fair are in fact fair. We like to think that we know injustice when we see it. And despite our constant mistakes in diagnosing it, it's also, we, we tend to bring our self-interest to everything, our arrogance in thinking that we, can, we know better than God does as to what fair is and what it's not. And maybe we do understand what is fair and just sometimes, but there's, a, there's a, then another level, there's another gear of arrogance to tell God that he has to live up to our concepts of fair rather than trusting that if there's a God, then he's likely to be more fair than I am. And that if he's God and he's good as he claims to be and as we believe he is, then his justice is final. And my task then as a Christian is to conform my sense of justice to his, not to stretch his concept of justice to mine. In Revelation 16.1, it continues. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath of God. And out come these seven bowls of God's wrath. Now notice, there's not ten, for instance, like in the Exodus story. There are seven. That number, as you know by now, is, symbolizes the completeness, if you will, of God's wrath. Seven angels pouring out seven bowls of God's wrath. It would appear all angels, all wrath. Yeah, all the angels, all the wrath. So there are seven bowls. The first harmful sores upon those who worship the beast. Bowl two, the sea becomes like the blood of a corpse and kills all living things inside. Bowl three, rivers and springs become blood. It sounds like the Nile River turning to blood back in Exodus, right? Uh, after bowl three, the angel that poured out the cup of wrath that turned the, river, uh, uh, the rivers and springs of water into blood stops, time out after bowl three, and gives God praise. So think about that. God's getting ready to roll them out. We stop and we praise God. Three, play, three of these bowls are open and then time out. Let's praise them again. And here's what the word of praise is. Uh, Revelation 16, 5 to 7. And I heard the angel who had authority over all water. That's a big job. Saying, you are just, O holy one, who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. Like maybe about that time we're starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. The angels stop and they go, oh yeah, by the way, God, you're giving everybody exactly what they've earned. Your ways are true and they are just. Deep inside every human spirit, there's this unquenchable longing for justice. We want justice because we're created in the image of God who wants justice. He's just. He thirsts for it, for justice. And we're created in his image and thus long for 
justice. And John here in Revelation, through just revealing what God allowed him to see, reminds us that it's coming. Justice is coming. The justice and judgment of God is going to come. It's going to come to this world. And it's in this, at this point in this series of visions that we've been looking at that, that you see it begin to come to pass. Now, the just and true part of God goes back to, in the book of Revelation, back to the letters to the seven churches. Do you remember the little refrain that he gave to each of the seven churches? I know your deeds. So before he renders verdict on the church or either affirms them or offers them a rebuke, he says, I know your deeds. I know. I know. I know. One of the problems of our version of justice as opposed to his is we don't know. We don't know everyone's deeds. We don't know everybody's motives. We don't know everybody's hearts. He does. He knows. He knows. He knows. Now, to those who are, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more inclined to, to, to be terrified by that, it's also a part of his love, right? When we sit there and we talk about how great it is that God knows every hair on our head and how he knew us before we were even born and all that, he knew. That's part of the implications of, of who God is and his knowledge. Yes, he knows your sin and mine. And he loves you anyway. He knows. Right? But the blood of Jesus is what he offered on our behalf to make sure that our sins had been atoned for once and for all. Who he's talking to here are the people who not only reject Christ, they make war against God's people. So not only do they reject the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, they persecute and murder people who accept him and are covered in the blood of Christ. And so every time there's a Christian who suffers persecution, every time that someone is put to death, here, overseas, anywhere, for, for, for the sake of the name, he sees it. He sees it. And I, for one, find that Oddly comforting, as terrible as it is at, at one level. Now, in our world, when people do something wrong, instinctively they try to hide or cover it up, and it often backfires. There's an old story that comes out of USC. I don't know if it's actually true. There's a story of a really great football player who wasn't particularly sharp. Uh, he was sitting next to an A student in class. Their exams come in. Football players' grades had been toast to that part, it had been awful. The A student is sitting next to him, but they end up getting the same grade on the same exam. So the professor thinks, okay, what's going on? And he calls the football player in. And the professor points out to him, you know, you really haven't had a clue in the class. I'm a little surprised that you got as good of a grade as you did. And he says, well, I'm sure it was just a coincidence. I studied really hard. Um, and he says, yeah, but you and, and the A student, you guys actually only missed one question each, and it was the same one. That would be quite a coincidence. And he says, well, I think it's a coincidence. I worked really hard on it. He says, yeah, but, but look at his answer. He says, I don't know, and you wrote, I don't know either. See? So the little 
the little idea of, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to try to outsmart. I'm going to try to get past God. He's unfoolable. Whatever we say, Jesus says, be quiet. We'll be shouted from the rooftops. You talk about words of Jesus that don't get preached on very much. Try that one on. And there's a reason for that. That's terrifying. I don't want everything I've said in quiet. That's why I said it in quiet. I don't want it to be shouted from the rooftops. But sometimes it looks like if you're a Christian there at the time, it looks like Rome is going to get away with all of the wrong things that Rome has been doing. You know, you, you, you go around town and you, the police blotters are full of unsolved cases, money is stolen, lies and unresolved. I mean, they may be It may be in this life, but before it's all said and done, the truth will be known. The truth about every murder, the truth about every war, the truth about every dishonest financial transaction, the truth about every false word ever spoken, the truth about every failed marriage, the truth about every troubled family, it's all coming out. Now, this is perhaps, other than loving our enemies, our least favorite passage from Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. And then he continues, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the mountaintops. It's terrifying to the abusers. But it is gospel to the victims. When you're the one that's the victim of, this, of the injustice, then hearing it sounds very different. So notice how you feel when that happens, right? When you hear that text, is it a, oh no, I hope that doesn't happen? Or is it a, I cannot wait until that happens? Here we have judgment, judgment falling, and through these visions, God saying essentially, look, judgment came to Pharaoh. It didn't look like it was ever going to. It looked like he was in control, but in reality, he wasn't in control at all. And the seas parted, and the seas came together, and judgment came down on old Pharaoh. Judgment fell on Babylon, even though it oppressed the people of God. Judgment came and Babylon fell. And John is saying judgment is going to come to Rome too. Judgment is going to come to old Domitian. And it did. It would eventually be poured out there on Domitian. And one day judgment is coming for us all with utter finality. It may not look like it now, friends, but justice is coming. And it will be truth. And it will be just. And it will be fierce. And terrible. What is Armageddon? It means in Hebrew, Mount Megiddo. So when you go and they tell you you're going to see the Valley of Armageddon, when I went to Israel last year, I couldn't wait. And then when you get there, you realize, because you're looking for Mount Megiddo, there's no mountain anywhere. 
as flat as a pancake. You're like, what in the world is this about? It's like, you know, Mount Abilene or Mount Barstow. Like, there's no Rocky Mountains there. There is, though, a tell. It's not a f- phrase I was, I'd, I'd hear it like Tel Aviv or, you know, other kinds of places. But I didn't know what a tell was uh, until uh, I studied in college and I realized, okay, this is a cultural layer cake. It's when a, a civilization is built and then another one is, comes in and wipes everybody out and builds right on top of them. They burn everything to the ground, they build right on top. And then they get wiped out and... You want to see a really good example, get to the temple someday, and you can see the layers of people who controlled the temple over the years. You can see a few pieces of the old Jerusalem temple with which we're familiar in our Bibles, but then you can see, you know, when that was destroyed, they came in, built on top of that, and they were destroyed. Somebody else built on top of that. So it could be that there's some significance to that. The mountain is going to be after civilization, after civilization, after civilization comes and goes, but... I don't know that that's necessarily the case either. Along with it, there's this weird battle fought against Gog and Magog, two terms that you may have heard of, and it sounds creepy because of the, just the way it reads in English. But back in ancient times, those were actually fairly commonly used terms in John's day. Rabbis would use them fairly frequently as a kind of shorthand to just refer to the enemies opposed to God. They, they didn't, that wasn't like a special country or something like that. It was just shorthand for Anybody who opposes God, the enemies of God. Armageddon appears once, Revelation 16, 16, in all of Scripture, where John is saying that all people and all forces who oppose God, they exist, they're real. All people, all forces who oppose God will one day face judgment, and they will be defeated. God's justice is going to prevail. He will win this battle. And God is passionate about justice. That's the point. That's the plot. God is in control, we are not. And that's a good thing. Those of you who are, who are parents, love your children, right? I would hope. But I want you to think about how your parenting will, you'll have good days and bad days, right? One day you're like super dad, the next day, you're like, what did I say or do, right? Just that, okay? Just think about that for a moment. So that guy, let's say it's me. So I should be sure that on any given day, my perception of what is fair in the world is right. It's hard for me to be fair for a day straight so how in the world would I be able to identify it with such an intellectual and moral purity that I could look to the heavens and say, well, yeah, but, I mean, if God does that, then he's, he's way, 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 way off. I can even detect in myself the propensity to acquit my friends and penalize my enemies, be harsh. I can even detect in myself... Self-interest, where if it benefits me to see it this way, then I see it that way. And if it benefits me to see it another way, then I'll see it that way. See, what, what we're getting here, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. 
Just and true, just and true, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's what they sing. They praise God for his justice, which brings justice and truth to the world that we fill with lies and injustice. God loves peace on earth and in all of his goodness. He longs to destroy evil finally. That's one of the reasons why we're told to leave room for God's wrath. It's real. It's coming. That's why we don't return evil for evil. We don't take vengeance against our enemies. Because we're not just and true. We're self-interested and apathetic. But his promise is true and can't be changed. And then the question coming out of that is how ought we to live? Next week on Easter Sunday, we get to kind of look at how it all comes together at the very end and just the sheer glory and splendor of the picture that is given to us at the end is just breathtaking. But today on Palm Sunday, we're going to take communion here in just a moment and I want to take it this morning as a meal of hope for justice in the world. Now and or in the life to come. A commitment to, to the best of our ability, trying to do the right thing, quote unquote, to do justice in the world in which we're in. To, to take, I mean, after all, remember, when you take the bread in the cup, you're, you're taking these symbols of unleavened bread and wine that have to do with the Passover. The Passover was an event of justice. It's where God answered the prayers of the Israelites for deliverance from Egypt. So when we do it, every time that we do it, we remember this. And today being Palm Sunday, perhaps today, the first day of Holy Week, the day of the greatest act, the great, the greatest act of injustice in human history, the execution of an innocent, perfect man in public humiliation is on its way on Good Friday. But today we remember him riding into town on a donkey's colt, king of it all, all the ages, coming in on a donkey while the Roman soldiers stand around proud, their shields and their swords and their chariots looking so impressive. Not realizing that the guy coming in to them on the sword is not just God himself, they couldn't kill him if they wanted to. That's what we look forward to here on Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, now with bread and cup, we say thank you for your justice. Father, we are awestruck by it. 
your desire to get rid of the things that are revolting to us, most importantly revolting to you, Father, we understand to be a, a sign of your goodness and your grace and your love, that you are not someone who turns a blind eye to evil, but through Jesus you have overcome evil. So Father, now on this Palm Sunday, we choose a side and we choose wisely choose Jesus, the one who rode into town already victorious, but humbly coming into town and we throw our palm branches down on the road and we say Hosanna as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.